Hi, my name is Jackie. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 8. I play hard because that's how I do everything. I always push myself to be the best that I can be. Type 1 diabetes does not stop me from doing the things that I like to do. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for being on the Team 1D podcast. So for anyone who's looking to like study abroad with type 1 in college or just go to a foreign country like by themselves with like a small group, what advice would you have for them on that? Number one, talk to your doctor. If you're going to a foreign speaking country, get those words translated for any sort of emergencies. Know where you're going, where maybe if there is like a diabetes center or know kind of some of the rules or like definitely know where your U.S. embassy is. I mean, that's extremely important. The numbers for them. Carry supplies, carry backup supplies, split it up amongst your um amongst your bags in case, you know, you lose a bag or something gets stolen so that you, you know, you just, you want to be able to be self-sufficient and you're planning on relying on yourself. So just make sure you're overly prepared. It never hurts to be overly prepared. And the beauty is, is as you use that supplies, your bag, get, your bags get lighter and, uh, you know, talk to your pharmacy beforehand, talk to your insurance beforehand look at travelers insurance. There's a lot of different travel insurance companies that don't cover pre-existing conditions. Some do cover pre-existing conditions. Um, as long as you, you know, you get that like 90 days before you travel. So again, reading the fine print and just trying to be kind of overly prepared. And like in countries, I remember I used to do some mountain guiding in New Zealand and they had an accident plan that is basically good for anyone that visited their country. I had pretty significant snowboarding accident while I was in the back country there and required some surgery and it only cost me 60 bucks and they didn't need to deal with my own personal insurance. They, they had their own coverage provided for visitors. Uh, I don't know if that's still true to today, but again, you know, it never hurts to reach out, uh, especially if you are going to more of like a first world country, try to link up with a diabetes organization. And it's always cool to learn about diabetes culture in another country as well if you're willing to do that, just to see how others live. Okay, so I'm just going to ask some like basic questions about snowboarding because I know I don't snowboard, I ski if anything. And so I'm just going to ask like, what does it truly mean to be like a backcountry snowboarder? And like, is that different from normal snowboarding or just yeah. in your own words, what was that? So I describe backcountry snowboarding as it's all snowboarding that is out of bounds. Um, so you have your, you know, your typical ski areas and then backcountry is where you don't use a ski lift to go to the top. You maybe use a helicopter, you use a snowcat. Most of the time you use your own two feet. You hike up to the top of a mountain and then snowboard down. Now, the one thing with backcountry is you don't have your things like ski patrol. You have to be very well versed, very well trained and with people that have some very precise skill sets in order to stay safe in the backcountry because you have real big hazards such as avalanches, uh, falls, cliffs, tree wells, all sorts of different things that are typically controlled in a ski resort. Um, so it's basically you're climbing up usually with your own two feet. 
Um, I use a, spe a special snowboard called a split board. It splits in half uh, into two giant skis. Uh, they're like ba basically giant snowshoes. It allows you to get to the top really efficiently. Um, and then when you get to the top, you put your uh, split board back together. It turns back into a snowboard and you snowboard down. And uh, in, in the snowboarding world, we call a split board um, the poor man's helicopter or the rich man's snowshoe um, because it's a lot more efficient than snowshoes. It's not as nice as a helicopter. A helicopter is very quick, whereas it can take us anywhere from a few hours to six hours or however long to climb the mountain in order to get like a 20 minute or a 30 minute ride down. So usually when you do this, do you go alone or do you have like a group of people that you go with typically? Yeah, so I never I never go alone because of the risk of avalanches. If I was ever to be caught in an avalanche, I would have no one to rescue me if I was alone. And then, uh, that's extremely important is to never go alone. So it's usually I go with a team of partners. And depending on that team, those partners are partners that I trust. I know that they have their avalanche certifications and they have a risk tolerance that is equivalent to my risk tolerance. I've been out with some partners before that their risk tolerance is to go for things a lot uh, or go for a lot riskier things than I do. Um, so I've kind of fine-tuned my backcountry partners to be more at the level of, I want to go climb this peak if it's safe today and be able to snowboard down it if it's safe today and be able to do this the rest of my life. Whereas some people are like, I just want to go climb this, whatever it takes to snowboard down. And those are the people that usually end up dying in avalanches or having bad accidents. And so I want to be able to do this throughout my life. And, you know, until the day that I die from old age, um, I don't want to die early from, from an accident in the mountain. So I go with partners. Uh, my, my best partner is my wife. And uh, because we look out for each other, you know, we want to be there for each other and grow old with each other so um we are our best partners and then we have a few other partners we go with if i'm on an expedition um to like a remote place to a new mountain scape where there's no knowledge of if we're climbing a mountain that's never been climbed before um and i'm with new people i they i educate them about my illness um about type 1 diabetes i also have some other autoimmune diseases but um type 1 diabetes is the main thing i can face in the backcountry so i tell them like what are the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia what are the signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia here's where i keep my glucagon here's what to do here's how to get sugar in me if you notice me doing this or this if i'm acting drunk like then i'm probably having a low blood sugar i need to eat so i give them the whole rundown. And I find that, you know, if anyone doesn't want to hear that rundown, then they're not a good backcountry partner. They're not a good teammate because either their life is going to be in jeopardy if I'm having a low, because I won't be making smart choices, or they're going to put me in jeopardy by not being able to look out for me. And so I'll just dismiss those people and have nothing to do with them. And uh, the people that I go with, they're intrigued. They want to know more. They want to learn more. They want to be helpful. Um, even when I was competing full-time, my teammates were the same way and they really wanted to know everything about type one. Um, 
I remember one time I was preparing for a competition. I was off to the side. I was visualizing and kind of meditating, kind of seeing my run before I got into the course. And one of my teammates came in to check on me to make sure he thought I was having a low. So he came over with a bag of Skittles. And I was like, no, sorry. Thanks for checking on me. I'm just visualizing. I'm kind of picturing my line um, before it's my turn. So yeah, I just kind of share that information with whoever the teammates are. Yeah, that's great. When you're in those like extreme weather conditions, how do you keep supplies warm and how do you keep everything covered as you do things in the extreme conditions there? Yeah. So if I'm winter camping, I will, my insulin is always on me and I keep it close to me in like a jacket pocket. I've used some gear that, um, that some like polar explorers have used, like people that have climbed like Everest and Denali. There's these things called overboots. There's a company based in the Pacific Northwest called 40 below. And they make these things that go over your boots to protect your feet from uh, frostbite. Um, they also make these little pouches. And so like, I can put my supplies in that and maybe put like a chemical heat pad, like a hand warmer in there, uh, to keep my supplies, um, warm. And then otherwise it's like, keep it close to your body heat inside a jacket pocket where your body heat's going to keep it at a comfortable temperature. And then when I'm sleeping, I will put my insulin, put it in like a Pelican hard case. And so I won't break a vial. And then I'll stick it down at my feet, down at the bottom of my sleeping bag. And then I don't have to worry about it, about it freezing. So just kind of those sort of techniques. A lot of those techniques I found out by just kind of Googling. Um, I came across when I was first diagnosed, I came across a polar explorer and a guy that climbed all seven summits, the highest peaks on each continent that had type one diabetes. His name was Will Cross. And I was able to kind of research some stuff that he did. So again, like you don't really have to reinvent the wheel too much because there's, there's so many uh, athletes out there with diabetes that have done really cool things and amazing things that just like simple Google researches or just reaching out to them, you can get a lot of tips that way. And so I was able to just kind of search around and find out what other athletes do in different situations and then modify that for me. And again, trial and error. If you can do trial and error, you know, locally in your own backyard before you do something big, like a big trip or anything like that, that's the best way. Like if you're planning a big backpacking trip or a big camping trip, like do that locally first. Like, you know, get the kinks out when you're close to home before you go big and do something big. As I was reading up on you, it says that you are living off the grid. How do you just do that in general? And how would you say that you've handled that with type one? So the living off the grid, I kind of, we took that, um, I grew up in Southern California, as I mentioned, and in a lot of these mountain communities that we've lived in, we don't usually say we're from California because for some reason, Californians are frowned upon in a lot of these mountain communities. So, you know, I grew up in Orange County. I had a concrete backyard. I lived two and a half hours away from the mountains and I at the school I went to, I didn't get the chance to take like 4-H. I didn't get the chance to take like wood shop or any of these other things. So I really wanted to learn a bunch of different skills so that if one day, if Molly and I have kids, we can teach our kids a bunch of skills. And through travel, I learned about a lot of different cultures and how they lived. And we were on a ski and snowboard expedition in the Yukon territory of uh, Northern Canada. And we stayed in this off-grid little tiny cabin. And where we had to haul our water, cook on top of a wood-fired stove. And at nighttime, we would watch the northern lights outside. And it just like blew us away, like blew our minds. And we were like, wow, 
there is nothing to distract us here. This is so simple. It's so relaxing and we feel so connected to our surroundings. And so that's what's inspired us to like change our life, change our habits to go move towards an off-grid life. And so we just made the jump one year and we started in Northwest Montana outside of Glacier National Park, outside of a community called Whitefish. We built a yurt, which is basically like a glorified tent. Uh, they're famous in Mongolia or Kyrgyzstan. That's where we got the idea was for after our expedition to Kyrgyzstan. They're called Gurs over there. They're for nomadic people. They move around, they set them up and they live in them. And ours is a very, was a very westernized uh, version. Um, it was actually featured in HGTV and uh, also on the Discovery Channel. Then we got asked to be on another TV show called uh, for the DIY channel called Building Off Grid. It's That TV show is now on the Discovery Channel. It's called Building Off Grid. I think we're on uh, season two, an episode called Tiny House on the Lake, where Molly and I, Molly's my wife, we built a tiny off-grid cabin and we collect rainwater that we then filter for our water needs and showers. We had a wood-fired hot tub. We heat with firewood. That's our heat. We get power from the sun, from solar power. And we, you know, we have a composting toilet or an outhouse. Um, and so everything is, we created our own utilities. And yeah, we just, we love that lifestyle. And then eventually we moved to Alaska and we are living in an area called the Kenai Peninsula, about 45 minutes from a town. We lived past this uh, homestead called the Kilcher Homestead. They have their own TV show, I think on Discovery Channel called the, I forget what their TV show is called, but anyway, so yeah, we, and we lived off the road system. So the only way to access our home was via a four-wheeler or a snow machine or a dog sled. And then a couple years ago, Molly and I, moved way far north. Um, we moved up uh, north of the Arctic Circle at a latitude of 67 degrees north. Um, we live outside of a tiny village that has 12 people um, called Wiseman. It's in the heart of the Brooks Range, which is the northernmost mountain range in North America. And we are 63 miles above the Arctic Circle. Um, wow. And uh, we sit right outside of gates of the Arctic National Park. And right across uh, the valley of, from us is Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of caribou that migrate through. You have your standard grizzly bears, your black bears, your moose, your wolverines, uh, your lynx. Also, and we get all the, the massive bird migrations from every continent that come through in the spring. And our nearest grocery store, our nearest town, which is what we're in right now, that's Fairbanks. And that's seven hours away or about 270, 275 miles away. So out there, we are incredibly remote. We built our own homestead out there. We run a retreat center out there called Arctic Hive. And one of the reasons why we have seven dogs right now is because we use dog sled to access our home. We also use a snow machine sometimes or a four-wheeler. And uh, it's just a way to get around. We can go into the national park to with a dog sled we can hunt for food with a dog sled it's just really 
dogs don't break down. It gets really cold there in the winter. We can have weeks on end of negative 40. This year, I think we got to, I, I believe, negative 54. The year before, oh. it was negative 60. But we're under the northern lights for about 250 days, I think. Right now, it's the land of the midnight sun, so the sun doesn't go down. We will get to see stars for the first time come August 21st, and that's my birthday. And so that's when we get to see the night sky again, and that's when the, when we can see the northern lights again because it's dark enough. And so from August 21st through April 21st, we can see the northern lights any night that it's clear. From November 30th through January 10th, we have... Um, no sunlight. We don't see, uh, well, we don't see the sun. We have uh, what's called twilight. It's dark out. And at 10 a.m., it's completely dark out. But there's parts of the day where you get like a twilight, you know, when which would be equivalent of having like the street lights on, right? When the street lights typically come on anywhere else in the U.S. And so there we have a total off-grid system. We have to, obviously, with no sunlight in the winter for those lawn stretches, we can't rely on solar power. So we we have a, a wind turbine. And so when it's windy, it's generating power that goes to a battery bank that charges our refrigerator. We don't need a freezer in the winter because that's outside. So we'll just stick the freezer outside and keep it, you know, it's just so, so cold out there. We don't have to worry about that. And then if our batteries do run low, we can fire up a generator that recharges the batteries. And basically we can run a normal house just as you would anywhere else in the world. We've designed our system so that we can make our own power in such a remote location. Whenever we come to town, so like right now we're in town for a couple of days and we're doing a resupply. We come to town about every six to eight weeks. We'll go to Costco and we'll get to the grocery store and we will load up with like shopping carts upon shopping carts of groceries. And then we'll haul it all up in the trailer enough to last us six to eight weeks. Sometimes we get some wild game. We can get it from people in the village that, that get moose and they'll share some of the moose or some of the caribou. But it's also nice to come to town and get some fresh produce, especially in the winter, because obviously we can't grow produce in the winter up there. We go to town about every six to eight weeks. We get our dog food, fill up about 60 gallons of gasoline fuel that we bring back up there to run our machines and all that sort of stuff. So it's a big process. And it, like I said, it takes anywhere from six to seven hours to get from the village down here to town. And again, that's our nearest hospital as well. And then about six to seven hours to get back up there. And we have to go on the road that's called the Hall Road. It's been featured in a TV show called Ice Road Truckers. So it's a pretty wild road and it's very remote. And we have a bunch of emergency supplies with us at all times. We have sleeping bags in the car. We have flares. We have a personal heater in the car. And then we have a CB radio so we can talk to the truck drivers so they know where we are on the road. They can communicate back to us because the truck drivers going up, they're going up to a place called Prudhoe Bay, which is where all the oil fields are. So they're basically the only drivers on that road are these massive oil tankers. And you don't want to get in a car accident with an oil tanker that's carrying over a 100,000 pounds of oil on them. You just have to be in communication all the time. It just requires a lot of planning. And during COVID, our village was pretty much locked down. The um, governor of Alaska, if you lived in a remote community like us, it's considered living in the bush. Those communities or those villages were basically put under lockdown. 
meaning no outsiders were allowed to come in. And so actually during parts of it, so if we went to town and got groceries, we would do a pickup of the groceries. So we wouldn't have exposure as much. And then when we got back to the village, we would isolate ourselves for 12 days. And then after we were isolated, because there's only 12 of us and no one's coming into the village, there was basically no COVID there. So you could go about normal life, you could see your neighbors and that sort of stuff. So it was a very unique perspective. I mean, it was interesting that always coming into town, it was very scary because we knew if we caught COVID, we were going to be so far remote that we would be really in trouble. So we just had to really be on top of our, our game with that. Sorry, that was a very long winded. Oh, no, you're fine. To that. I just have a couple more questions. How okay. do you keep your insulin completely stored and at a good temperature in those negative 50 degree days? And Yeah, that's, that's a tricky question. That's been the hardest thing to adapt to is the extreme cold because it is extreme cold that far north. Sometimes we'll have, a, if we know we're going to town and I have those spare vials of extra insulin, I'll have a neighbor watch it that, that has, you know, they have their wood stove going. So like in our house, in the winter when we're there, it's always 70 degrees. So it's always warm. So our refrigerator's normal, like nothing is freezing up. But when we leave, we turn off the wood stove and we're gone for about three days, a trip down, a trip to recover, and then a trip back up and everything freezes back up. And it takes about 12 hours to reheat our cabin and uh, warm it back up and have the logs and the wood and absorb all that heat. So I'll drop my insulin off, my spare insulin off at a neighbor's house that has their fire going and they'll put it in their refrigerator and they'll keep it protected. So I just have to kind of think ahead like that. If I don't have that option, we'll bring a cooler down and, you know, we can stuff snow in the cooler and then get it in our car as soon as possible and then drive it down to town and keep the insulin cool like that. Okay, cool. And as we wrap things up, I'm just going to end with these final two questions. What is the most weird thing that someone has ever said to you in the context of type one? I was in Costa Rica once and I was down at the beach and someone came up and asked me about my insulin pump and they're like, whoa, that's cool. Is that like one of those personal locator beacons? <laughs> and so that, I don't know, that was just kind of funny. I get those kind of comments and I'm just like, that's absolutely ridiculous to say to someone, especially something that's like attached to my arm, like, you know, like, no, it's an MP3. It like sends the vibrations to my to my head, I can hear music, you know, you can just kind of goof back with yeah. them. But a lot of times they're super serious, like they have no idea. So I, I just say just kind of stuff like that. All right. And as I find a question for the day, do you have any advice for any teenagers or anyone with type one as we close things out? Yeah, so my final piece of advice would be don't get discouraged with your diabetes. Like, I mean, there's going to be times where you are discouraged, where you're going to get burnt out understand that that is normal. That is a normal feeling. You're dealing with a chronic illness and that chronic illness, a lot of people, they don't understand. So don't beat yourself up over that. At the end of the day, your pancreas is broken and your body is calling those shots. Just the thing that I found that has helped me the most is to find the courage to reach out to someone that also has diabetes, that knows exactly what you're going through. If you're afraid of going to a diabetes camp, or if you think that it's going to probably be lame or something like that, just give it a chance. Just give yourself a chance to go and meet some other people that know exactly how you feel. 
and be open to being open about your illness. A lot of people I, I've met have been shy or don't want people to know. They're afraid it's going to make them look so differently. You don't want to be friends with anyone that's going to look at you like that. You want to have friends that accept you for who you are. And so don't be afraid to hide your diabetes and also look at connecting with others that have this. I, I'm telling you, it has been the biggest thing for me, for any of my burnouts to carry me through any of the bad days or bad months is being able to connect with people that I have met through diabetes camps or diabetes organizations that know exactly what I'm going through. So reach out to the community. We're all here to help you through any hard times. All right. Thank you so much for being on here, Sean. That is all that we have for today. But thank you again. And please come back and check for next week's episode. I'll see you then. Bye. Awesome. Thank you. Bye.